Welcome back to season three of Brave Journeys. This season's lineup of guests is simply astonishing, and I know you're going to feel the same way. So buckle up, put your walking or running shoes on, or snuggle into bed, or do whatever it is you do when you listen to remarkable people share their incredible journeys. And brace yourself for some of the most gripping stories of courage, strength, hope, and inspiration. Oh, how I've missed this. Truth be told, three seasons in, I'm getting a little attached, you might say, to my Brave Journeys family. So let's do this. I'm Tam Faraday, and welcome to season three of Brave Journeys. If you've ever wanted to know what deep, profound, abiding, selfless, passionate, unconditional, inspirational love looks like, this is the episode for you. Jason Rosenthal enjoyed a wonderful but quiet life. He was happy to have his extraordinary wife, Amy Krauss Rosenthal, the celebrated children's book author, memoirist, filmmaker, public speaker, and all-round glorious human being, settle in the spotlight. Then, on Valentine's Day 2017, Amy penned a love letter to him like no other. I've been married to the most extraordinary man for 26 years, she wrote. I was planning on another 26 years. But that wasn't in the stars. At 51 years young, Amy was in the final stages of ovarian cancer. The love letter, come dating profile to which I refer, ran as a New York Times modern love column under the heart-stopping headline, You May Want to Marry My Husband. In it, Amy wanted to give Jason her public blessing to rebuild his life with their three wonderful children and find love again. You may well have read it. More than five million people have. Ten days later, Amy died. Since Amy's passing, Jason's overhauled his life and established the Amy Krauss Rosenthal Foundation, which funds both ovarian cancer research and children's literacy. Jason's also delivered a TED Talk seen by millions around the world about grief and loss and published a response to Amy's viral love letter beneath the equally must-read headline, My Wife Said You Might Want to Marry Me, which is also the title of Jason's recently published memoir. And I really, really tried hard over the last four years to work on Jason, you know, and to, to find meaning in a way that I can travel through this world in, in a way that Amy did, which is really to appreciate those moments, those simple moments that life has to offer and to not rush through and be hyper concerned about business and all of those things, to appreciate things in a deeper way. And whilst Amy's legacy as a creative tour de force will never dim, having written two groundbreaking memoirs and 30-plus best-selling children's books, including Yesterday, which has just been turned into a Netflix original film starring Jennifer Garner. It's what Amy stood for as a wife and mother, daughter and friend that will endure for generations. So with Amy's very public permission for Jason to go on without her, his future is a blank space waiting to be filled. This is Jason's story. Jason, welcome. I have wanted to talk to you ever since I lost the ability to speak after reading Amy's exquisite essay in the New York Times Modern Love column. I want to start at a place of love. So can you tell me about your beautiful wife, Amy? Because the word magical comes to mind. 
Sure, I can. Uh, you know, one of her favorite expressions was uh, always trust magic. So that's interesting you say that. You know, we could probably chat for the entire evening about Amy, but, you know, Amy was first and foremost, and my, my mother-in-law always reminds me of this before she gained any notoriety or fame or whatever. She was just a really good person. And what I mean by that is that she was kind by nature and selfless by nature. So when she turned all of that into her creative flow, her creative juices, it was natural. It was in her DNA, as was, you know, this incredible ability to see words in a way that you and I would never be able to see them. So she was a writer, of course, but she was also just a generally incredible wordsmith. You know, she sort of described herself as someone who liked words, which was really true. Uh, and that came forth in, in her work eventually uh, as she became an author. You know, so she was a, she was a prolific author. She wrote over 35 children's books. She wrote many adult books, two incredible memoirs that were groundbreaking. She made films for the sake of making films, you know, short films that were not commercial in nature, but just because, again, it was inside of her and she wanted to get it out, you know. And she gave a lot of talks, you know, TED Talks and, and, and other talks around the world uh, in libraries and schools and had a real way of connecting with uh, young readers. There's so much more to say. So I'm going to deep dive a bit further, if you don't mind, because I'm, I think I'm a, a very big softie for a love story, but your love story is something that is, is just something that doesn't happen every day. It really doesn't happen every day. And if you had to distill it for me, Jason, what was the secret behind your incredible marriage? But before you answer that... I want to just punctuate it by saying this, okay, because I've told you before we spoke today, I've inhabited your world for, for quite some time now, okay? There are love stories. There are romance stories. There are extraordinary families built by exceptional parents. And then there was the two of you. And you set the bar so high. And I don't believe for one second you were embellishing. This was the Rosies, as your family's affectionately known. And you were so in sync your values were shared. You both treasured your respective in-laws, which is quite remarkable in and of itself. <laughs> your Very kids true. are incredible human beings. Your friendship circle is the envy of all. The extended family were pillars of strength and goodness through the wonderful times and through the tragic times. And what the two of you managed to build was so many things. It was wholesome and it was pure and it was tender and it was crazy and it was spontaneous and it was loving and there was so much fun and there was so much food and there was so much music and dancing. You even wrote marriage goals and ideals and you didn't just live them. You kind of embodied every single one of them. So back to the question I asked you now an hour ago. <laughs> what was the secret behind your relationship? It's a good question and a fair one. And I got to say, you know, before any of this uh, happened, it was just, like you said, the Rosies. We were just a family like many other families in the world walking through through life, you know. I didn't know any different. Uh, I, I, and so I don't know that there's one magical secret. I think that the essence of our relationship, that's the two of us, Amy and Jason, was that we just had this profound mutual respect for one another, you know, not only as human beings, 
But eventually, as professionals in our respective careers, individually, and then we made it important to maintain a connection, a love connection, if you will, throughout the course of, of, of a lifetime together, you know, 26 years together, a lot of chaos, like you said, of the young kids and what all of that brings, but always remembering who the two of us were. And so, um, you know, if, if it, it has happened where people have since asked me some relationship advice, you know, <laughs> which that's not my forte, but I, I think that's really important, those issues that I just mentioned. And, it, and it, it was so visceral what you two shared. It really is. It actually belies the, the normal, you know, trials and tribulations in one sense of a relationship because you met very, very young and meeting young doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have this profundity of connection and that it's going to endure. And you most definitely had that. The two of you go on to raise these three remarkable kids, right? So we've got Justin and Miles and Paris. And unlike most people, which again makes you very exceptional, you guys didn't dread the thought of an empty nest. Right, right. Because yeah. you, did, you did what you seemed to do with every other aspect of your life. You celebrated and recognised that it was time for the two of you. And you'd earned it. And you adored each other. And you were both very young. And it was your time and you absolutely couldn't wait. But then in September 2015, Amy travels for work to Washington, D.C., and she feels a pain in her right side and she calls her doctor and the doctor advises her when she returns to Chicago to go straight to the emergency room. And she calls you and she tells you. And the fact that you knew you had to take her to hospital was frightening enough. And you hoped it was appendicitis, Jason. But it wasn't appendicitis. Right. You say the word tumour invaded Amy's body as well as your lives. Can you take me back to September 2015 when this bombshell hit your family? Yes. You know, so, um, well, first of all, I want to say I appreciate your preparedness because you, it's such a good question and the way you framed it. Yeah, I mean, it's really just true. We, we, again, had lists, you know. We had a lot of things we wanted to do in our life. And it really was just a place for us to start again, if you will. Because you're right, we were, we were 25, 26 when we got married. Uh, babies, really. We were very much looking forward to that empty nest. And, and what happened quite literally the weekend that my youngest child, my daughter Paris, went off to college, Amy came back from that trip, as you indicated. And uh, I did take her to the hospital. And it was at that time that we learned from a doctor who also was very quite young and, and not so well equipped to deliver this kind of news. Um, informed us that there was a tumor, that it was likely malignant, and that we needed to get it looked at further. And that was the bombshell that, that, that rocked our world and changed all, all of our lives forever. But at the time, uh, you know, we, we did what we do. We, we went to work. We went to work to reach that, uh, you know, outer circle that you were talking about, all of our friends and community to, to find the best doctor. And we we just went to work, you know, and I was very confident, uh, despite the statistics that I don't think I really processed at the time, uh, that we would get through this, you know, and that Amy would live the rest of her life maybe on uh, as a cancer patient, but that we were going to beat the odds. Jason, how do you break this news to your family? H how do you tell your kids that their mother 
And Amy was no ordinary mother, and that's something I would love to explore with you a little bit further. How do you tell them that their mother has ovarian cancer? Well, I don't wish it upon anyone, and um, it was for sure the toughest thing either of us had ever done in, in our lives. And they were dispersed all over the country, working, going to school. And so we just said, listen, we, we would like to set up a, a conference call. We've got some information we want to share with you guys. And that's how we did it, you know. And it was pretty remarkable. And you're right, they are remarkable uh, young adults now. And they immediately, all of them, just simply reacted in, in a way that was, what can we do? How can we be there for mom? And, you know, are you telling us everything that we need to know? And that's what we did. And they, they remained uh, incredible throughout the entire process. And we could talk as much about that as you want. But, uh, you know, we're right there in the appropriate way for their mom all along the way. They absolutely were. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So it, it was no surprise that you have such extraordinary kids, but their devotion and their selflessness when it came to their mum and her selflessness when it came to her lion cubs was unbelievable. She most definitely wanted life to go on business as usual. She did not want right. any interference or any interruption or dislocation to their lives despite this diagnosis. Is that, is that fair? Right. It is fair. And I love how you use the expression lion cubs, because I think that my boys for many years until they were about 10 years old and 12 years old did think they were lion cubs. So it's a very appropriate reference. The devastating diagnosis left you feeling impotent as Amy's husband, but it also left you optimistic about the outcome. And you say in your extraordinary memoir, and I'm going to quote you if that's okay. Sure. This wasn't just anyone being operated on the next day. This was Amy. Amy Krauss Rosenthal. No way would this woman who dedicated her life to goodness be stolen from us. This beautiful soul, the driving force behind an interactive short film called The Beckoning of Lovely, had too much to share and too much left to do to leave this earth unfinished. This big-hearted, selfless lady whose legacy colour is yellow, the colour of happiness, glory and wisdom. This daughter who respected and admired her parents and in-laws. This revered sibling this cherished wife, who would not possibly be taken and leave such sorrow behind. No way. This woman, the perfect parent who adored her children, could not leave me to do it alone. She didn't leave you, Jason, but tragically she did leave. And before we get to the part of the loss of Amy, I would love to go back because, again, I think that this is the pixie dust that she spread in her life. And... You know, I have seen so many videos now of her and photos of her and I've cried in anticipation of this uh, chat with you more times than I can even tell you because there's a real resonance with the way that she mothered and there's a real resonance. You were talking about a wordsmith before and I certainly would never be immodest enough to liken myself to someone as extraordinary as Amy Krauss-Rosenthal but all of those things make perfect sense to me. That's what my life has been about and so I just... I adore her from afar, and I know that might sound very strange. I never met her, but her glory and her beauty shone through absolutely everything that she did. It was contagious. And I would love you to take me back, if you can, to Thanksgiving 2015, where you conspired with your beautiful girl, Paris, to bring her home, to see her mum. Tell me about that. Yeah. You know, Paris was all the way uh, across the world, really, in Canada, going to college. And so 
that's what we did. We conspired. Uh, you know, everyone else was sort of gathering for the Thanksgiving holiday at my in-laws place in, in, in Florida. And so, uh, Paris and I conspired to get her to come and surprise Amy. You know, this is when Amy was going through, uh, her treatment. And so it was just amazing. You know, Paris snuck into the garage and I invited Amy out to the garage to check on something. And she saw Paris there. And you know, the, the reaction was so typical Amy and Paris, you know, they were so connected and she nearly jumped out of her skin. (laughs) And it was just, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. But she didn't want her to come because, again, she didn't want her daughter's life disrupted. And there was no public holiday in Canada. So it was a big deal for her to get to Florida, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes. Yes. I want you to share another story with me, if you don't mind, because this one made me weep. It actually made my mother weep. I want you to share with me the magical story of the day of the Oscars in 2016, because for those who don't understand I've, I've laid it pretty thick already, but your synchronicity was epic, right? There, there aren't too many human beings I know that had this kind of just in-tune love yeah. and devotion. So please tell me about the Oscars. I love this story. Sure. So, you know, I had been commuting back and forth from Chicago to Florida. Sometimes I'd stay the weekend. Sometimes I'd stay for the full week because I did have to check in on some things here at home, including work. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, that thing. Um, that thing. And, so the weekend that I was going to be coming to to visit Amy on this particular occasion you're talking about was the weekend of the Oscars. It was something that we had done together. You know, we'd sit, not necessarily seen every film that came out, but we tried and we enjoyed, we enjoyed it. I had this tradition throughout my family as well uh, growing up. And so I was going to see Amy on this weekend of the Oscars and I said, well, I'm going to. I'm going to put on a tuxedo as if I am going on a date with her to the Oscars. And so I did that. I traveled on a Southwest Airlines flight in a tuxedo. By the way, no one asked me anything about why it was in a tuxedo or (laughs) barely reacted at all. And so I landed in Florida, got in my Uber to the house. And sure enough, when I got to the house, outside the door was a trail of a red carpet. So Amy had also had the idea, of course, you can tell, of of this evening, this Oscar evening and making it special. And so you're right. It was just a, a beautiful, beautiful moment of us both, again, thinking about each other and thinking about, you know, how we could make our, our time together more special. Because your relationship was like this endless private joke that only the two of you were in on. I mean, that's what it felt like as, a, as, a, as an observer. Tell me if I'm wrong, but we've all seen couples you know, and we've thought, what are you wasting your time for? You're not right for each other. You're just making mm-hmm. each other miserable. So that's one end of the spectrum. Yes. But you guys owned all the real estate on the other side of the spectrum, right? And you were really madly in love with each other in the end. And all I kept thinking of is what an incredible legacy to have given your children for them to have seen that modelled. That's the stuff of magic. It's magic and it's, you know, of course, uh, augmented by the experience we went through at the end, of course, right? Um, because they were right there almost every step of the way watching how I was taking care of her and things like that. So, yes, your your point is well taken. Absolutely, yeah. Jason, in the summer of 2016, you get news that transforms your dread into elated optimism. 
So you find out that Amy's cancer is in remission. So the Rosies did what the Rosies always did, and you were a family who congregated, appreciated, and celebrated. And there is this exceptional photograph of Amy. <laughs> yeah dressed in a beautiful dress, just beaming, because you did, you you partied and you marked the occasion and it was in summer and it was just, you just see the life force of her coming out of her beautiful face. It was really something amazing. Tell me about that night. Well, it was even more than a dress. It was a, a one-piece lime green jumpsuit that Ooh. I think only Amy, Amy could pull off, you know, so it was pretty spectacular. Yeah, I mean, we... Right here in the in the backyard of my home in Chicago, we uh, got a DJ and we we invited. It was a cross generational experience. You know, we invited our friends. We the kids invited their friends. They weren't embarrassed, and uh, we just partied the night away. We had a really wonderful time and gave a toast and and celebrated life because how could you not? You know, when you were dealing with what we had been dealing with, and yeah, it was it was a very special evening. So you're due to drive, again, this is another uh, litmus of the kind of mother that Amy was, but you're due to drive your son Miles to Atlanta for college. Right. And that was a road trip that Amy absolutely endorsed and wanted you to do desperately. And had she been well, she would have been there too, no doubt. (laughs) Yeah. But a few days before you set off, Amy was admitted to hospital with uh, shortness of breath and dangerously low blood pressure. And even as ill as she was, she was ultimately, as I said, just one selfless mama bear, and she wanted the two of you to continue to Atlanta from Chicago. Business as usual, everything has to continue as it was because there was no way she was going to let her son miss out on being driven by his dad to college. So you do as you're told very reluctantly because you're obviously very torn, and you head off for Atlanta, and seven hours into your trip, you get a call that Amy wasn't doing very well and that there was a likelihood that her medical team were going to have to put her into an induced coma. So you and Miles, I don't know how you did this, is some Herculean superhuman strength. You and Miles scramble to the nearest airport, which I think was Nashville, and you miraculously make it back to Amy's bedside within two hours of receiving yeah. that call. Yeah. But she didn't exactly welcome you back with open arms. <laughs> That's textbook AKR, huh? That is textbook AKR, Yes. So what was her reaction for those who haven't read? Well, it? she was like, you know, she, as it turns out, she did not have to be placed in a medically induced coma, but she was on this experimental treatment because the chemo was not working. And there was like a 3% chance that this terrible lung situation would happen and all that. So we walk in and she's wearing sort of like this clear Darth Vader type mask, you know, and her eyes just bulged out of her head and you could see that anger because you know amy was one tough cookie when she wanted to be you know and she was incredulous she could not believe that we were standing there like what were you doing i told you it was okay that you could go that you could take him back to college and of course that quickly dissipated and she was so grateful to have us by her bedside and appreciated the effort that like you said that that we Went through to get there, and boy, was that an adventure. It's a it's a fun part of the book, I think, to read because it, it, it reads like a Hollywood script, even though it's 100% true, you know. Around New Year's Eve 2017, you, you write so hauntingly in the book, as we sat there silently together, I got it, and I felt it with everything in me, that our time was limited. But I couldn't let myself give in to the grief of knowing that. My only purpose at that moment was to make my love 
my wife, the mother of my children, the most extraordinary person I've ever known, feel comfortable and comforted. And what follows on from there is that you come back to Chicago after spending time in Florida with Amy's family, which would prove to be the last time. And you're told by Amy's oncologist that her tumour markers were off the charts. And this is when the word cure is taken off the table. And you're given the heartbreaking choice to either do hospice in the hospital or hospice at home. And of course you chose. Chose home. Yeah. You chose home for sure. You know, and I, and I, I emphasize when I talk about this part of the book, you know, that I don't put any judgment on anyone for making the choice to do hospice in an institution that's sometimes mandatory because it's just impossible at home, work, whatever, you know, it's like people are not equipped really to feel like they can accept that challenge. And I get it. I totally get it. But for us, there was just no question about it. Um, Home is a home that she and I literally built from the ground up. And there was just no no decision to be made. We, of course, were going to do it at home. And yes, that meant a tremendous amount of dedication and work for me and for Paris and for the boys and for my mother-in-law. But but there there was just simply no choice. What's the hardest part, Jason, if I can ask you? I mean, you are so generous with your openness and your candor and your transparency, but what's the hardest part of bringing the person you love most in the world home to die? Because as you said so honestly, it's it's not a choice that everybody could make. And I'm not even just talking about the logistics of it, which are gargantuan. It's such a painful process and life will go on after that, arguably. So h- how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the answer really is with laser focus, you know, and my only mission was to really make Amy comfortable pain-free, you know, comfortable, and loved. And that wasn't really difficult for me, nor was it difficult for the kids or for, for you know, our parents. But I think that's the, that's the answer. Yes, there were dark and scary, scary moments, especially as things worsened health-wise and, you know, that physical demise starts to take place that I, I like to talk about only in the sense that it's real. You know, and not a lot of people describe what it's like to be with someone you love at the end of their life, you know, in a real way. Um, But I think it's important uh, because for me, it was all new. Everything about it was just brand new each and every step. And there's some very, very, very dark moments that uh, I don't wish upon anyone. Yet you learn from those, too. You know, you definitely do as as you don't know that at the time, but as life as life carries on. Yeah. As I said, you, you've been so incredibly honest about every step of the way and you said that Amy's doctors were vague about physical intimacy and you decided in your memoir not to be. Physical intimacy wasn't possible shortly after Amy's diagnosis but the emotional intimacy became increasingly potent and profound without breaching any confidences. Can you give people an insight into what that intimacy kind of looks like at the end of life what kinds of conversations are you having that are just probably frightening to a lay person who's never experienced this before what i learned from from that experience is that i wanted to share it and so as i you know continued to speak around the world for the three years before COVID hit um to to groups i would say you know listen i was lucky 
And the reason I say that is that we had time together. Amy and I had time together. You know, many people lose loved ones in an instant without any warning. And in a way, that's more difficult because you don't have that time to really get down and dirty and talk about things that are so important to you. So I'm going to tell you what those are, but my message is, you know, to, to have those conversations when you're younger, when you, when you can't believe that that's something you should be thinking about. I'm here to tell you that you should, you know, you should. And whether that's, you know, a mate, a partner, a parent, whatever the relationship is. Um, but for us, you know, and for me in particular, one of the most important things for me, one of those things that kept me up at night was how am I going to parent these kids without Amy? You know, because like you said, her connection to each and every one of them was so deep and, and so different. You know, as anyone who has children knows, every kid is very different and has their own unique individual needs. And she just knew how to reach each and every one of them. And I had so much angst about how that was going to go on. And she, in, in many of the conversations, just assured me by saying simply, Jason, listen, yes, that's true, but you're their dad. And you have a special relationship with each one of them as well. And you're going to be okay. I can't tell you how much that simple message meant to me when she was gone. And then still is important to me. Not to say that there's not a lot of challenge in raising young adults who've lost their mother, because there there is. Uh, but it was so helpful for me. And then, you know, we, we went through all kinds of different things. We've talked about, you know, practical matters, like some financial goals. We talked about practical things like, you know, did she want to have a service? And if so, what kind? Was, did she want a religious component? Did she want music? Let's talk a little bit about who might speak at this event if, if you want it, you know? And so there were a lot of things like that that we talked about too. What do you want to do with your body? You know, do you want to be cremated, buried, you know? So there were, there were all kinds of things like that that I, I discussed in the book too that we talked about. You know, I've spoken to a lot of doctors, especially recently, you know, who said we have to have these conversations. We have to have these conversations because it obviates a lot of the agony and the anguish at the time of, of loss. Yeah. But I can't imagine how you coped with those conversations. But how did Amy cope with those conversations? Because she was not a lady that wanted to go. She had so much more to do on planet Earth. How does a brain inhabit those two realities, the one that you just want to fight till the bitter end. And I'm not talking about cancer being a battle. I'm just saying that this was a woman who had so much to live for and wanted to live and juxtapose that with what to do in the case that I'm gone and, and what to do with our finances, what to do with the kids. How did she do that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It sort of morphed over time. You know, at the beginning when we would just talk in general about the fact that she was dying is she just wanted a sense of normalcy you know she wanted to be back to normal when she when, this is before she you know we knew that it was home hospice i'm talking about you know when we knew that that terminal illness is terminal illness but that we might we might be able to to beat it you know she, she just really wanted to be normal again you know um, and that's powerful you know com coming from someone like her who like I said, was sweet and kind and generous, but also very strong, you know, physically and mentally very, very strong. Um, so it started sort of like those conversations. And then it really became, and this happens fast, is that, you know, she obviously wanted the best for me. 
And so there was some selflessness there. And it becomes sort of practical stuff. You know, it just does. And the medication that she's taking to cope in general makes it a little more palatable to to have those discussions, I think. And and some of the fear starts to dissipate. It's all of it's super complicated, but yeah, that's, that's a little slice into it. I mean, this might be too personal and you can absolutely tell me to bugger off, but how do you comfort someone who is facing their demise at an incredibly young age? Because there is a point where you know the diagnosis is terminal that you most certainly can't say, we're going to beat this, we're going to get through this. You can't kid to someone as smart as Amy. Right. How do you comfort them in that overwhelming sense of grief at the loss of their own life? You comfort them with intimacy and with love and stepping outside of what used to be just you, you know what I mean? Like I, I sort of forgot a lot about Jason during that period of time and uh, my focus was was really her and with a, a lot of honesty and love, you know, and that's that's what we did. Well, you did that during your beautiful courtship and throughout your entire relationship and you did it at the end too. It was It was consistent all the way through. Yeah. Um, you just said very poignantly that during that time, particularly when Amy was in home hospice, that you really didn't look after Jason. Jason became right. very secondary. But there was a time, it was just for a moment, that you walked down the street, I think it was maybe to get some milk or something pretty incidental, just to feel some fresh air on your face. Right. And then you come home and you find something pretty extraordinary on your front fence. Can you tell me about that, Jason? Yeah, it was just so sensational. And when people ask me, what's the biggest lesson you learned throughout this? There's there's several, but, you know, what I, just the way I focus on it is that I learned so much about the human race and how beautiful people can be. And we don't hear enough about that, by the way. You know, we're everything's so contentious, and especially this past year in the, in, in the election here in the U.S. and with COVID and all that stuff. But anyway, I digress. Um, I, I had stepped out to get some groceries and was literally gone for 20 or 30 minutes. You know, my job was to be here for Amy. And I come down the street, you know, I just walked in my neighborhood and I, and I start walking down my street. It was dusk. So the street lights were on, but there was also some sunlight. And I look up towards our house and I see the most remarkable thing I've ever seen, which was that all across the width of our fence, uh, there were tied these open yellow umbrellas to the entire width of the fence. I think there must have been 10 or 12 of them. And in addition, there was a sign that was left, you know, a, a sign of love for Amy. And they were glistening in the, in the light, and it was just a stunning, stunning image. And the beautiful thing about the story and the reason it's worth telling is that it's still to this day uh, an anonymous act. No one has ever stepped up stepped up to say that they had had done it and so sh could it have been a dear friend of amy's and ours sure but it very well could have been a stranger as well i don't know what was the symbolism for those who don't know we've spoken about yellow being her color what and her signature is a yellow umbrella just tell me about what that came to mean to amy and how yellow kind of inhabited her world and there just happens to be a yellow umbrella <laughs> over my right shoulder, just, you know, by chance. <laughs> Product placement. The problem is no one can see us having this conversation, but there's, I was just going to even say a moment ago, you, 
I don't even know if you're aware of this, but you sort of gestured sort of, I don't know if it was to your left or to your right about looking after Amy, you know, like the, her visceral presence remains, mm. you know. I mean, I can observe this, unfortunately. People listening to the podcast can't. But, yes, you have a gorgeous pillow behind you that has the signature yellow umbrella. Tell me about what the umbrella symbolises and what that came to mean for her in her work. Yeah, so the yellow umbrella started because one of the films I told you at the beginning, Amy made these incredible films just because, and and often they were community-involved creative projects. I know that's big, but hear me out for a second. So this one started with a very short film that she wrote. Uh, it's called 17 Things I Made. And then she said at the end, we're going to make the uh, the last thing together. Meet me at Millennium Park, which is a, a beautiful park and has significance to us. We spend a lot of time there here in Chicago. And we are going to make something together. And who knew who would show up, right? She'd never done anything like this before. But sure enough, we got there that afternoon, early evening, and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there. And she said, I will be the one with the yellow umbrella. And so she carried this yellow umbrella into Millennium Park to meet these throngs of people and started this beautiful uh, project, which ultimately became The Beckoning of Lovely, a short film that you could find on YouTube. And then that, that was the beginning of it. And so it became her symbol and now her legacy symbol as well. But here's the mark of this incredible woman. Okay, so despite now being terminal, despite her frailty, this brilliant creative writer and filmmaker was still so prolific in her output. I think you even said at one point, even in the darkest day, she was still doing something like 16 hours a day, you know, punctuated by some micro naps, but she she was on fire. She was working to the end. And she managed to have what I have to call the masterpiece that she wrote um, that was published in the Modern Love column of the New York Times on March 3rd, 2017, 10 days before she died. And the masterpiece of which I speak was entitled, you know, it has this heart-stopping title, You May Want to Marry My Husband. And I have to say this to my beautiful listeners who I treasure, unless you have shares in Kleenex, I would strongly advise against reading it because it will break your heart almost like nothing else I've ever read will, but it will also give you the best insight into what love, true love, unconditional, all in, magnanimous, selfless, in sickness and in health love looks and feels like. Jason B. Rosenthal. I like using your whole name. I really have come to love your name. Can you tell me about this ethereal prose which bookended Amy's life and gave you the gift of a shot at a new one? Yes, I'm a lucky man. You know, she had this one final project that she wanted to finish. I knew that. I did not know what it was. I had no clue. And I sat watching her work as I had for the past few months and she would tinker away at the keyboard and, like you said, take these little micro naps brought on primarily due to the very heavy medication she was on for the cancer and pop up and write some more and finish the project. And she said, would you like to read it? And I said, sure, I'd love to read it. And, of course, I was like you, blown away at the prose. It was so beautifully written. 
And of course it was about me, which was again, so selfless. And the reality, the, the one thing that you forgot to mention was that it was also funny in the, in the face of this absolute tragic story, you know, of course it was because it was Amy and there was beautiful wordplay and all of that. And so I, of course, gave my blessing. How could I not? You know, and I, I have to admit at the time I was not such a, a, a fan of modern love only because it, I, it wasn't really on my radar. You know, I would read the business section, the sports section and arts and leisure, whatever else. <laughs> and, and, uh, but she sure did. She knew exactly where she wanted it placed. And the amazing thing was, you know, I've, I lived with a writer for 26 years, a very accomplished writer, but even so you never know. Right. I mean, there's, there's rejections that occur, but of course they took it. And of course they published it. And the other amazing aspect of that is at the end, she left me a literal blank space in the New York times, which is a valuable uh, commodity to, to, to leave a space that pretty was valuable real estate. <laughs> yes. And she negotiated that it was, she was adamant about it. And of course they, they accepted that. And, you know, I've used that blank space, not just to, you know, try to accomplish what she left it for, which was to, to find love again and start another chapter that way. But uh, as a metaphor for continuing to fill that very huge void that she left me with meaning. What I wanted to ask you, I've been thinking about this a lot, because when she wrote that magnificent piece, it was very much towards the end of her life. And therefore, you were in the absolute thick and throes of grief. So the anticipatory grief followed by the reality of the grief, the reality of the loss. When were you actually in a position to metabolise what Amy had written for you? Yeah, you know, <laughs> a funny reaction, like, you know, almost immediately after it was, it was published, it was picked up all around the world in different publications and news, news stories and things like that. And so I walked to the Starbucks at the corner and I told the barista like he cared, this is my wife, you know, she's on the front page of the newspaper, you know? So I, that little moment I start, I, I thought I was going to get excited, but he didn't care. And so I moved on, <laughs> but, 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 but the reality was that, um, I was not able to process what was happening to me and to us and all of that for quite some time. You know, I, I denied all, all, all press reaching out to me. They were, you know, literally within a week asking me salacious details about whether I was going to get married again and all that stuff. It wasn't interesting to me. And it took me a long time to really appreciate how well received that piece was because I was getting flooded with correspondence, not just emails, but letters and trinkets and pieces of art and medical advice and all of that stuff. And it wasn't really until I began to sit down to write my TED Talk, which I agreed to do, uh, that I really appreciated and sifted through all of those correspondence. And, uh, and again, the, the, the general theme that keeps popping up is, is, you know, how amazing, how amazing people were to me and my family during that period of time. They didn't know me from Adam, you know. And they were really mostly just genuinely reaching out to me to see how I was. Is there anything they can do? Try this, try that, you know, things like that. So it was a, a, a remarkable outpouring from the publication of that article. But this is also something that makes your story unusual, and I'll tell you why. We live in a world where loneliness has become the true pandemic for so many 
And you have humbly recognised that despite your anguish and your grief and the terrifying panic that followed after Amy's death, you were surrounded by immense love and support. You refer to your flock as a world-class family and they absolutely are and I was just going to ask if there's any chance that they would consider adopting a stray from Melbourne, Australia. But anyway, that's another story. We'll talk about that another time. But in all seriousness, Jason, how do you emerge from the pool of grief and start blinking in the sunlight again? And I also want to tell you that perhaps unlike everyone else who has ever interviewed you, I'm not talking about a new relationship. I think that's your private business and that's not something that I want to explore here. Amy is the subject of this conversation and in her honour and in her memory, I would like to just talk and focus about that. But you and I both come from a tradition that has an entrenched ritual during the first seven days of mourning. So after a funeral, it's called a shiva, which means seven. And this is a time where family and friends and community surround the bereaved after death. And this intense period is replete with customs, but what's perhaps the most weighty part of it is that mourners are symbolically lifted on the shoulders of the community that loves them. But when that seven-day period ends, in our case, or for other people, however, they memorialise those who have departed, right? Right. So when the seven days goes and everyone goes back to their lives and you're left alone with your grief and your loss and the empty home that you lovingly and agonisingly converted into a hospice with the empty bed that you'd shared for 26 years, the home that your children no longer inhabit because they've gone on to live their own lives and you know that your life is forever changed and yet the world continues as before, how do you walk back into the sunlight and try to rebuild? That's it right there. That's the question, you know, and it was foreign to me. You know, I didn't know how it was going to happen. I thought I would be the guy at the end of the bar, knee deep in a a bottle of whiskey at 12 noon. You know, I, I really wasn't sure. But I was very fortunate, and I want to lay that at the beginning. I had many people reach out to me, total strangers, who said to me early on, you know, Jason, you will find joy. And at the time, I was like, who who are you talking to? Who do you think you're speaking to? You don't understand. I I, I just lost Amy. That's never going to happen for me. But, you know, what I what I tell people now is that time is a crazy thing and you know you have that tight tight grip of grief that consumes you and for however long you know there is no timetable for that or for grief in general but eventually that super tight grip will slowly slowly loosen and that happens for me and you know it happens in baby steps you Perhaps hear a song that you used to find a lot of joy in and you find yourself singing out loud or you, you're at dinner reluctantly with friends who've invited you out and you find yourself, you know, having a cocktail and, and laughing a little bit. Slowly, slowly, those types of things are going to happen. And then there are memories, you know, there are things that remind you of, of, of the loved one that is gone. In my case, you know, that happened to me all the time. And many times, most of the time at the beginning, it would cause me to just ball, you know, and, and lose it completely. But slowly, you know, those things started to make me smile. And even as I began to, you know, as people began to reach out to me, 
people would ask me if they could tell me stories about Amy, you know, and that really was beautiful also. And still, actually, to this day, I've, I've heard of stories that I didn't know before. Um, and those are really wonderful to receive. So, you know, the answer is that, that it, you crawl out slowly, you take baby steps, you give yourself a break, you know, because you're going to take a few steps forward, a couple back, a lot of anxiety will build up. And then it will loosen. And those flows, that process is normal. So I've already noted that you have a world-class family, but you also have a world-class friendship circle, as was personified by the Heal Jason Tour. Can you tell me about that? Of course. Sure. Yeah, that was uh, my friend Michael made that, uh, that phrase up. But uh, we, you know, music, the background is music was a, a huge part of my life. Growing up through high school and college, and then when I met Amy, even together, we connected with a lot of uh, musicians and bands that we would see live music. It was just a big part of what we did. It gave us a lot of joy. And so when my friends approached me about traveling to to see one of our favorite bands live at an outdoor venue in Colorado, a magical, magical place called Red Rocks, I said, sure, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to try. Let's try this. And you know, surrounded by friendship and it was impossible not to smile and to laugh at certain experiences. And then, you know, there we were at this incredibly beautiful venue in, in Colorado, found myself enjoying it, dancing, having a good time. And again, surrounded by what you call my, my circle, you know, my, my, my friends who just were there for me and still we've just gotten closer and, uh, yeah, it was a very special, special trip. Amazing. Can we talk about fatherhood for a moment and navigating that journey when your co-pilot is no longer there? She clearly gave you all the confidence to know that you are an exceptional dad and that you will be all right. When push comes to shove and you're actually that person and you're not just being the father that you were prior to Amy's death, as you said so correctly. You're also now a father of young adults who are grieving the loss of their most important person. And you're also experiencing the worst agony of your life. How do you, how do you navigate that? Well, you know, I don't know the answer with young kids. Um, I'm learning a little bit about that, but it's a process with these, with these young adults who are spectacular. You know, it's, I think it's a group process. It isn't just my concern about being their parent, it's about how we're going to act and walk through the world together. I was placed in, in this public profile in a way, and I've been really vocal about my experience and, and talking about all of these things in a, in a very open way, like you say. Uh, they are not so much, you know, and so I have to be reminded that they too lost their mom and that huge void that's in their lives you know and so that's that's what we've been doing is figuring out a way to walk through the life without their mom around now you know four years has passed and we've grown in different ways and so it, it's a constantly evolving process um, i try to hang on to a lot of traditions i've tried to travel with them and things like that, you know, that's, that's what I will hopefully continue to do throughout the rest of my life and be there for them at those, those big milestones. You're there for the big milestones. You're there for the little milestones. This takes the cake for me. Okay. So indulge me for a moment, right? So in your memoir, 
you ask your son Miles, who serendipitously comes back to live with you for a period of time after Amy dies because he gets a job in Chicago, but put that to one side. You ask him to write whatever he wanted to say about the impact of the last couple of years on him. And what he wrote completely floored me. To see a grown son speak of his dad the way that he spoke about you was such a tribute to the father that you are, to the relationship that you've built with your amazing kids. And I honestly, I cried like a baby for many reasons, I suspect, if I'm being honest. But Miles finished his piece by saying, I have found nothing in my brief sojourn on earth that imbues me with such a sense of completeness as being with my father. I owe him more than I could ever hope to repay, but it's a testament to the man he is that he may very well say the same thing about me. What did that mean to you, Jason? Well, I, uh, you know, I I was not surprised at how beautiful that piece was. Miles is a, uh, you know, he's a thoughtful philosopher and, uh, you know, he's a very deep thinker and his written expression of those feelings about me and about us was just incredibly beautiful, incredibly beautiful. And I thought, as you did, a very important part of the book. If Miles is by any chance in touching distance, I don't think he is because you said that he's away, but can you give him a hug from me? And I really want you to tell him that I've rarely read anything that touched me as deeply because what it said to me, what it screamed actually to me is that he is pure goodness and he was clearly raised in untainted, unconditional, generous, uncomplicated love. He's a very deep thinker and a philosopher, but please, please pass that on to him. And it stayed with me, and I'll, I'll tell you why, it stayed with me because while the book is so much a love letter to Amy, the mother, the wife, the daughter, the sister, the friend, the mentor, the inspiration, the muse, the transmitter of love and sunshine and incredible kindness. The book is also a testament to what a father can and should be. You did good, Jason B. Rosenthal. You did real good. And I just wanted to tell you that. I appreciate that. You know, it, it, it is all of those things about Amy. And it's also about how I have, you know, I've, I've coming around to thinking this way. Um, but it's also very much about how I have been able to find myself, you know, find myself in this case through the written word and through the spoken word, but it goes much deeper than that. And, and I really, really tried hard over the last four years to work on Jason, you know, and to, to find meaning in a way that I can travel through this world in a way that Amy did, which is really to appreciate those moments, those simple moments that life has to offer and to not rush through and be hyper-concerned about business and all of those things, to appreciate things in a deeper way. Did meditation help you with that? Because you meditate now, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, no, it did. It absolutely did, for sure. A hundred percent. The biggest lesson I've learned through my meditation practice, and, and no one gets this right, but, you know, we all have this chattering that goes on in our head constantly. Right. Um, but I think the tools of medication, not medication, (laughs) not medication. Beautiful Freudian slip there. Yeah. Right. Oh boy. Tequila is my only medication. Um, meditation is that it really does help you to just 
to quiet those voices for the however long you're sitting, but also to try and carry it out into the world. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing for me. I highly recommend it to anyone. You're preaching to the converted. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that meditation was going to inhabit my life. Yeah. You don't assume that when you're type A, meditation is going to kind of quiet the chatter, but it does. It's quite miraculous. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me, I mean, your life has changed significantly since you lost Amy and you have your life is so imbued with purpose and you have, you know, you're not as involved in your legal practice as you used to be. You sort of slowed that a little bit and you're a public speaker and you're highly sought after all over the world to talk about grief and loss. You're the go-to guy. Can you share with me now the mission of the Amy Krauss Rosenthal Foundation that you established in Amy's honour? Yes, thank you for asking that. Uh, you know, I just knew that I wanted to start a, a foundation in her her honour and her memory and it's a twofold mission. Uh, one is to raise awareness of early detection of ovarian cancer, of course, because there is no test now. And women are tough, and, and, and the signs and symptoms that uh, are there for ovarian cancer are largely ignored. And, 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 and when the disease is discovered, it's often too late. So we are making some, some steps in that regard. We've, I think, at this point, uh, issued three, three or four grants, and it's really, really exciting. And the other aspect of the mission is to uh, engage in child literacy projects of different kinds. And uh, I'm really, really, really happy to say that uh, we have donated, I used to say tens of thousands of books, but over 100,000 books uh, to kids in need all over the country. You know, we just donated a bunch of books, the uh, Yes Day books, which I'm not sure if you guys have encountered that movie yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> encountered that movie yet. That was last weekend. Very, I was snuggling very, very. with my four kids and we're watching this amazing film. You, you actually won't believe this because it sounds just too, it doesn't sound like I'm being legitimate. I promise you it's coming from my soul. We were told about yesterday. We watched yesterday. And then I saw the credits roll and I saw Amy's name and I'm like, this is not possible. This is not, I, no. di- I didn't know of the book. I didn't know of the book. To my horror, I didn't right. know of the book. And then I no. saw this magnificent film that was produced and starring Jennifer Garner, and I'm like, this was inspired by Amy, like <laughs> this woman that I adore, that I've never met, but yeah. I totally adore. It's such a beautiful concept. It's a great concept, and, you know, to Jennifer Garner's credit, she just did a, a wonderful job with the project. She consulted with me about can she place little nuggets throughout the course of the film to honour Amy and she just gets Amy, you know, and so that's really beautiful. You know, you hear these things about movie stars being aloof and, and, and in it for the profit and all that. But she is a genuinely wonderful human being, buried down to earth and real. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And she is. Yeah. So I suppose a blank space is the freedom and permission to write your own story. And in death, Amy gave that gift to you. Your talks and deep insight into grief and loss are now the stuff of legends as we've spoken about. What would you say to someone, Jason, who is in the depths of grief, who don't think that they'll make it? Do you have any words of wisdom? Well, I would just say, yes, I do. I mean, I think. I, I, I would say first and foremost, get in there and feel that grief and how, how you know it makes you feel and take as much time as you need to be there. Um, because that's very important. There's no deep grief, that overwhelming sensation, unless there was that same amount of deep 
love. And that's not something you realize right away, but it's really, really true. I didn't realize it right away. I didn't appreciate, you know, what I had in my life and what I lost uh, until it was gone. Um, and so I would say, you know, that first and foremost, but, but also be gentle with yourself as you begin to emerge from this, this tight grip of grief and give yourself a little bit of a break, you know, take some time to take care of yourself, your, your physical self. Remember that it's important to, for you to be healthy and to be there for others because you'll need that strength. And, you know, as, as time goes on, you are going to live if you love that deeply with this grief, no doubt for the rest of your life, it won't always consume you like it does in the early moments, but it's going to be there. So just acknowledge that and accept it. And don't let anyone tell you that, Hey, aren't you over this yet? Because it's important for us, I think, to carry that grief with us. It makes us stronger. It makes us love deeper. It makes us appreciate simple things more. And to me, uh, my message is all of that is okay. Beautifully said. Jason, talking to you and learning about your ability to love and give and adapt and devote is so humbling. But I hope you won't be offended when I say I would have given anything to have met your, and she definitely was your, Amy Krauss Rosenthal. I said it earlier and I'll say it again, by all accounts, she was pure magic. And what you've done in her memory is just incredible. Much love to you and your beautiful kids. And I wasn't joking earlier when I said I wanted to be adopted by the Rosies. But thank you so much. It's been just a joy, an absolute joy. You're a special, special man and you deserve only goodness, joy and just blessings from here forever. I'm so appreciative. Thank you for taking the time to prepare for this like you did and to ask such beautiful questions. And I've never been to Australia. So you got a home now. Maybe, maybe one day I will give you a bear hug in person. I would love and it. And we'll get to sit down and share a meal. I would love that. Sounds beautiful. You take care. Thank you so, so, so much. No, thank you. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. The brave journey of my next guest is equally compelling and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Oh, and if you love the show, please don't forget to rate it and leave a review. Brave Journeys was created, hosted and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful team, including my audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week. <laughs>